My name is Jared Williams, and this is the Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who has ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. My guest today runs a healthy recipe box business. In his own words, it's all about building a brand that is a force for good whilst maintaining a premium position in the market. The market he is talking about is expanding quickly and there are already a number of established players with very deep pockets. Nevertheless, he and his team have scaled quickly, largely due to the fact they've identified and focused on a single USP, tapped into key consumer trends and implemented a successful fundraising strategy. That strategy has also opened their eyes to just how powerful cash in the bank can be. We started the year, that year on 200, 200 boxes a week, and by the end of January we were at 450, so we had doubled in size in one month, and that's when we realised, okay, wow, this is what capital can do. And that was the, I guess that was the first realisation, it was like, okay, you really can start scaling if you have money in the bank. That was Giles Humphreys, the co-founder of Mindful Chef, and you are listening to the Startup Blueprint. Now, whether or not you're a foodie or a food entrepreneur, you are going to love this episode. It's full of advice on everything from co-founder agreements to raising money, and from hiring staff to expanding your business into different channels at the right time and in the right way. Let's get into it. A couple of questions. Where did you grow up? What was life like? Um, family, school, friends, etc. I uh, grew up in Sidmouth which is in East Devon, and uh, for those who aren't familiar with the area, it's, it's about a 20-minute drive from Exeter. So I grew up on the water. Um, it's a seaside town, traditional seaside town. I actually spent a number of years living before that just along the coast in Seaton as well. Yeah. Um, and I used to go to school in Exeter, so I used to jump on the train and then latterly the bus and head in for a little trip to school every day. Um, and life in the early days was fantastic because it, it was, I think, how most childhoods should be in the very early days of just, especially at that time, there was there were no mobile phones or anything, so it was very, or, or iPads, so it was very much out in the countryside, you know, on the beach, in the woods, which is what I loved. Very um, cool. And we used to spend a lot of summers in Cornwall, actually. Really? Down, Whereabouts? Down, down in uh, Polzeth. Love my, it. My, my, uh, my granny had a little bungalow so we go there every summer and very very fond memories of being down there um so we got into our surfing and um, of course yeah and uh, bodyboarding which was awesome and just generally spending time a lot of, a lot of time outdoors and and i i yeah i was i was in extra um the kind of extra area at extra school till i was 18 obviously yeah uh, and at that point then age 18 and a half i headed off uh to uh, loughborough right yeah. Yes. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, I had many good weekend at Paul's Earth. Great beach. Great beach. Great surf beach. Do you know what I mean by the ice cream shop? The Yeah, as in the one. Yeah. yeah absolutely brilliant. Like 100-odd flavours, yeah. all from yeah. Langage Farm, which is, a, which is a place in Devon. Actually. Oh, really? Amazing ice cream. Oh, my favourite flavour in that shop was Thunder and Lightning. Thunder and Lightning. Yeah. Of course, Thunder yeah. and Lightning. Yeah. Honeycomb, yeah. butternut, cost cream. Yeah. Wow. Now we're sharing. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, how was Loughborough? Loughborough was awesome. I was there for four years. The first three years was my degree in uh, sports science. And the final fourth year was actually, um, I was on the British University Snow Sports Council. So myself and five other guys um, bid to uh, run, as it was known at the time, BUSK. Um, 
and we uh, we bid against a number of other unis, um, and you get you get to hold this job for one year, and that's it. And then you have to pass it on to another committee. We were voted on um, across the UK. All the presidents of each known sports club have one vote, and we got voted on. So we got a year where where we basically ran our own business effectively, uh, culminating and it had a load of events in the UK. So it was basically the university snow sports calendar, but. So you went to snow domes across the UK, Very Milton cool. Keynes, those, those kind of places, Tamworth, and then also dry slope skiing and mm. snowboarding. So there was a couple of places in Scotland and all over the country. And then it culminated in a huge two and a half thousand, three thousand person trip to the Alps. And we ran that and we ran it as a business for years. So it was really cool. We, our office was in Loughborough, um, but we spent, you know, probably 14 weeks of the year in the Alps going and finding resorts and then taking this huge event uh, it's a two week long event with two and a half three thousand students and um, within that my role was essentially marketing of the of the of the event and um, ensuring that we got sponsors and Red Bull and Nokia and people on board so it's really exciting and then you it's kind of the best year of your life because you run you run this business um, you make a profit or a loss and then you have to hand it over to another a uh, very cool committee never heard about that that's yeah, very it, awesome it was really really cool um so what um sorry just to, to, so i can get my kind of bearings um what what year did you leave loughborough then left loughborough in 2009 got you 10 years ago Wowzers. and then st- straight to london straight to london yep um i joined betfair right um, which i kind of fell into the gaming industry I was there for about four years um Really enjoyable, mm. not where I wanted to be long term, but really right. enjoyable. On the marketing side? On the marketing side, yeah. Interesting. So okay. I did experiential marketing and then moved latterly towards the end into a bit of digital. Um, so that was a great, I think it was a great great place to, to learn and understand. I mean, for, for example, we're recruiting CRM people at the moment internally um, at our business, but uh, at, the t- at the time I was immersed and surrounded by about 200 CRM people because obviously gaming companies have a lot of them. and. Uh, it was things like that you pick up and then you learn for the future working in a bigger organization mm. so it's really useful um, I was there for about four years yeah uh, then there was a restructure and about 700 people got made redundant including um, a number of us in fact our entire team I th- at the time didn't think it was too bad and still think it was pretty great because you get a payout and you and you uh, you get I think we had three months three months gardening leave so um, fantastic essentially it gave me time to really think about my next step, what yep. I wanted to do. Um, and I really wanted to continue my career within the marketing world and, and push myself and challenge myself. And for me, that was getting into the agency world. Right. So um, I, I spent those three months looking hard for re- what I really wanted, I guess it was. So this is 2013, end of? Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. early 13 Okay, early yeah. 13 um, And so yeah, I eventually stumbled across uh, an ad for a job at MNC Sarchi. And just kind of peppered the guys on LinkedIn and tried to get their attention and um, went in and yeah got off the job and uh, so I was at MNC Saatchi um, working through the ranks there for about another three years. Amazing. Yeah, 30, 40, 15. Yeah, it's about two and a half, three years there. Right. Um, learned a heap. I worked bet. On, worked on a load of accounts. Classic agency world. Yeah. Fast paced. Very hard. Uh, <clears throat> there's always a million people who want to queuing at the door to work at places like Saatchi so you're kind of um, you're under pressure mm. long hours but uh, learn loads and um, worked across a wide variety of projects and clients and um, and then it was at that time that 
the ideas started flowing in about Mindful Chef. Yeah, I've I, I've I've read about the, the the moment, but so so where did this? So so two questions uh, that will come together. So where did where did the idea for the business come from? Um, and you're 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 a co-founder. So so explain how the team the initial team was assembled. Sure. So um, there's three of us. Myself, Giles, uh, and then two school friends, one Miles and the other Rob, um, all in different years at school, but all went to Exeter School, knew each other, uh, went off and did our own things at uni, came to London, did a number of years within various industries. Uh, Rob's background um, is finance. Uh, he works in hedge funds and um, various investment banks. And then um, Miles's background is uh, he's a nutritionist and was one of the lead personal trainers for Fitness First. So we kind of, we had a, I guess from the outset, which is very important, I always say when I do talks on start the startup world is having, if you're gonna start a business with other people, particularly, particularly friends, I'd say, particularly, particularly pertinent there, is having different skill sets. So, right. in our, so in our case, it was one had the financial background, one had the marketing background, one had the, uh, the health, wellness, nutrition background. Um, which worked really well. It meant that in the early days, we didn't clash. Whereas I've mm. seen, I've seen a lot of. In fact, I've met far too many startups where it's been started by kind of two guys, ex McKinsey or uh, basically uh, ex Saatchi and Saatchi, ex lawyers, yeah, and it and, happens, and, right? and they're the same, yeah. right? So they, they they basically bring the same thing to the party. Yeah, and they don't complement each other, and what normally happens is a bit of a clash. But we, yeah, so we started out. Can't even work out job titles. You know, you're trying to grow a business, oh, and you're like yeah. fighting over who's called C- CEO. Yeah, CEO, typically. <laughs> co-CEO, co-CEO, right? CEO. It, it all is largely complete, in my view, completely irrelevant. Yep. Until um, you're a much, much, much larger, larger organisation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had we had gr- a great time. We started the business from um, an apartment in Waterloo. Um, one of our apartments, and then we um, had a packing warehouse in Earlsfield in a kind of a workspace environment. Just rented a rented a tiny unit. Mm. Um, I mean, really small, and that's where we started the packing. Um, we we had no no funding, no external funding whatsoever. So it was it was our threes um, uh, cash. But e- e- equal contributions? No, no, no. We, no, really. Uh, Slide and scale. So the financier obviously had more. I, um, I'm guessing Rob had more yeah, than yeah, Miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so put it in, and then and then uh, agreed the percentage based on how much was put in. So that was, was fine for the equity. Um, again, at the time, we made sure it was right and fair. Mm. But, um, can, can, can I stop you there? Because because it's a, I mean this this idea of you know um, I mean the 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 people listening to this will either be weighing up starting have started in those early days the just this topic is is so rife uh, for, it's such a minefield you know setting up with, so, so, with mm-hmm. on your own with someone else how how, how were those conversations around because you obviously had huge belief that it was going to become this very valuable thing and you're mm-hmm. going to spend a lot of time and put a lot into it so how did you how did you decide was there a, was there a, a mechanism had one of you learned about this kind of equity division tool you know i see uh, them yeah, online yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. no actually we we approached it in a just a really like most of the stuff we've done in our journey we haven't tried to overcomplicate things we've we've approached everything with a whole mvp and a, a, a approach and for us it was very common sense it was you've put in x you've put in y you've put in z and that seems on a percentage basis to be a fair split accordingly and that and we all agreed that very quickly um and you're all full-time 
No, so the the we, we, the we also we also cool. had um we are full time now. Yes, but um yeah. at the time I was the first to leave my job. Yep, handed my notice. Rob still worked um, abroad at the time. Um, Miles, because he was a personal trainer, predominantly a nutritionist, he was able to be flexible with his time. Mm. So I went full time. Miles went part time. Then Rob joined part time finally, and then um, slowly but surely the guys weaned themselves off their other careers. Um, and it, actually, it's a really important point actually it took us probably nine ten months um from launch to them both being on board full-time right Interesting. Um, now it, it but it was you know really building from from launch day like miles would do 20 percent of his time on michael chef and suddenly it would be he would be doing 90 percent of his time on michael chef so there was a real swing mm. um but we we staggered it in the right way and it ultimately it meant that um we could pay me peanuts and the other guys absolutely nothing and just get the business off the ground yeah so i could just about pay my rent i had to go to mum and dad a couple of times which was um annoying but uh, i could just about pay my rent and um the other guys were just using their old careers winding them down slowly and then and then we finally had an, an enough revenues just about to be able to um, get the guys to come on oh, full time but fantastic. it was a, yeah it was it wasn't a case of just let's just all dive straight in and it's it's all all very easy. It was very much a, a staggered process. Yeah, and how how about the second part of that question? When when did the idea? Where was it born? Was it a eureka moment? Was it kind of like a bit of you know a few ideas kind of compiling? How how did it come around? Uh, so Rob and I originally. Uh, so we've, I guess the the kind of prelude to it is that we had always wanted to start a business, and Rob and I previously had um, an idea for a uh, kind of dollar shave club in the UK. <laughs> You've seen them all now, but this was back in twenty. 13 and mm. um, we set up the domains we went f- we, we went through the whole process and then eventually um did you did you steal the idea from we, another we saw, territory yeah we yeah. saw we saw the dollar shave club in in the in the states and thought what wow. a great, what a great, what a great <laughs> yeah. idea um really early as well but um it wasn't the right time we didn't get around to launching fully so we'd always had ideas the right time for you or the right for time us, for, the for us personally right, yeah, yeah yeah um then uh as a kind of background for me i love running entrepreneurial things on the side. So I created a black tie ball, small examples which are more social, but I created a black tie ball which sold 800 tickets every year in five minutes. And mm. the website crashed and I did that over a number of years Fantastic. and stopped it when I started Mindful Chef. I did a, a bike ride across Europe, which every year, once a year, went from 20 friends to 150 the size of the Tour de France and things like that. Just, I like, I, I had this kind of entrepreneurial passion. Mm. Um, both of which have stopped because my undivided attention is on Mindful Chef. But um, I guess Mindful Chef's uh, origins, they start on a fishing boat in Devon, which is our friend's fishing boat called the Compass Rose. And we were on there one summer in 2014. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we were out just helping them out. It was just a, a fun day out helping this little day boat. It's a family who, you know, they don't live off the fish they catch um, because they can't live off the sales of it. It's not big enough. It's just a small family day boat, but they um, they supplement their income with it. And we were out there on the boat and um, we were just chatting. And, and Rob, myself and Miles, and Rob basically had said, um, in New York, I saw these these uh, recipe box things. Um, haven't seen them in the UK. And we were chatting and... Um, and we said, well, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Like, look at the produce being landed on this fishing boat. We were watching after a, a you know, few hours out at sea, we would come back in and they would, they would SMS 600 villagers. This is in Limpston in Devon. 
and they would text them and, and the villagers would just get a text saying Cod, Ling, John Dory, XXX coming in at 2pm or whatever and we were watching this produce being landed and I mean literally off the boat straight onto ice consumer Amazing. pays for it gets it and it was this farm to fork you know um, model which we thought that's pretty cool like that's how yeah. food should be then we started then Rob I mean other than the SMS thing I assume that's centuries old centuries old centuries yeah. and yeah, centuries yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's very much just a tiny town in Devon yeah, and that's yeah. very hard to replicate on of a bigger course, scale but yeah. we thought how could we do that and then that's when Rob mentioned oh these things in, in the states called recipe boxes which seem to be somewhat capturing consumers attention and reinventing the this this food food chain and um, so is this 2014 yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then we, were, we, were, we did some digging had a look noticed that there was a couple in the UK um, Goostone <coughs> Goostone HelloFresh with um, obviously a few of the veg boxes also trialling it yeah um, but the only re- really two going for it which is Goostone HelloFresh and we we looked at it and we thought oh god it's a crowded market um, and it was it looked quite a big challenge um, but very quickly we, we identified one thing that we thought the others weren't doing which we thought would would be a real real value add to consumers and that was make the recipe box all about health so make it convenient just like everyone else make it delicious just like everyone else um, open up as many delivery days goes to as many of the most amazing suppliers as you can but the one thing that they, the other guys weren't doing which we mm. we tested time and time again and we tried months of boxes was that they were just loading the boxes week in week out with stodgy refined carbs yeah because it's great for margins cheap. consumers are it's cheap consumers are used to that, that kind of food right we like um, sugar yeah we like sugar that's what humans do yeah right? correct <laughs> and so I, I was like well just let's just remove all the refined carbs let's yeah. make it about health and let's let's kind of be there for the consumer who loves this concept loves this idea like loves the convenience loves reducing the cognitive load of planning your shopping and traipsing around and whatnot but mm. um, who just wants to eat a little bit healthier we're not saying go super diet focused but just healthier and so we, we said okay we'll strip out refined carbs so that's quite a, that's quite a common process when you stand back and I guess you, you, you describe what happened it, you, you saw a space that you were interested in um, you you identified that it was busy there was there was some big players there and yet you you identified a niche so once you felt you'd identified that niche you said you did some testing what what did that look like are we kind of talking chatting you know, going out speaking to 100 people picking up the phone to 10 friends getting some product into people's hands market analysis what what was that process like to identify whether you this thing was nuts yeah or yeah, there was something yeah, there yeah. to grow you know um i guess it was a bit of bit of all of the above we in the very early days we made sure that no one else on the market was doing what we thought was um, the right thing in fact we actually launched as a paleo service um, we were wait- we were going to call ourselves what was it some terrible name like paleo power or paleo people in the end thank god we didn't and we start went mindful chef which is far uh, yeah far broader and has a lot more scope down the line yeah um, but we, we less we, less kind of like I mean, faddy. Yeah. yeah, less faddy, less we're riding a trend, but it might might come and go very quickly, and it probably would have come and gone. Um, so what we did was we tested it on friends and family initially. We just said, would you buy this? And obviously whether what they say is not exactly the same as... Mum says yes. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> so friends and family, would you buy this? Then we put together a real, real MVP and just started sending out some bags of, bags of 
um, recipes that we created mm. in bags. Then we created some boxes. Um, and then uh, once we had done that, we then um, decided, do you know what? The industry is ripe for disruption. We did a hell of a lot of uh, research in terms of reading up. So I say the main thing that, that really powered us on in the early days was looking at um, the total grocery spend in the UK, which at the time was about 220 billion per annum, um, and taking the percentage of that grocery spend that was online. And at the time it was about 4%. And people think it's like, it, even now, it's about just over 7% of, of groceries in the UK are online. And in, in, included in that are the likes of Tesco's and, and Ocado and everyone. Recipe boxes are an absolute fraction of it. Wow. But the, when I ever do a talk, you'll say to people, what percentage do you think, including all the big boys, is online at the moment? And Gross. people say 40. Yeah, yeah, they go 30, 40. Yeah. Then when they realise it's like 7.5, they're just blown away. And in the early days, it was even less. Yeah. So the, the point is, scope why we got so excited. Yeah, and, mm. why, and why, we, why we got so excited and why we had the confidence, I guess, to, to push it in the early days was that I just looked at kids at school with their smartphones, glued to their smartphones. And I was like, there is no way that 93% of them are going to be doing it when they're adults in five years' time. Are going to be doing are going to be doing their entire grocery shop offline. It probably will never be fifty fifty, but it will be a hell of a lot more than what it is now. So that gave us impetus, and then we just like everything we've done, we just it was a kind of fuck it, let's do it. Yeah. and we just said, look, we've we've come this far, we've quit, we've quit our jobs or kind of quit our jobs in a couple of cases, and we just thought let's just launch. And the theme, consistent theme as to why we've done all right, I think, is that we've just gone let's launch an MVP. People don't like it, then we'll know very quickly. But let's just go for it. Um, so it was a, it was a bit of testing, a lot of reading, um, and then just a, a leap of faith based on that research. Mm. And that's generally when the real learning starts, right? Massively. Yeah, massively. Um, so when, when was day one of, of of real business then? Do you do you recall the date or? Yeah, I do actually. It was um, it was April the thirteenth, twenty fifteen. Fantastic. The day we put our. Facebook page live, our yeah. website live, all of our social channels live. Um, and I remember it because, well, we didn't, apart from the money we had in the bank, which was based from our, our own reserves, which was basically paying for the CapEx and, 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 and um, kind of packing operations and whatnot, and the, you know, just getting the produce in, we didn't have any marketing spend. So I remember it, it because it, we launched the business launching on Facebook and just sharing it to our friends and saying, please, please like this page. Please, please just take a look. We believe that this could be quite exciting and we've, we've spent the last six months developing it behind the scenes. Here it is. So April 13th, 2015, could be unlucky for some. Hopefully it's lucky for us. So what was it like in those early days then? Like getting those first orders from complete strangers, like how, how you know? It was quite surreal from strangers. So the right. first orders, there was 12 orders to friends and family. <laughs> And we used to drive a little Del Boy Trotter van around. It wasn't Amazing. quite three wheels, but it was tiny. <laughs> um, and we and we just drove it around certain postcodes in South London near near our base. Um, and we only only sold to those postcodes. Um, we didn't have any form of fancy tech. We just if someone ordered from somewhere else, which was unlikely because no one knew about us. You know, but if you if you happened to find our website and ordered from North London, we would just say, "I'm really sorry, we can't fulfil just yet." So we'd manually go through and email people. Um, and then the first, I think it was probably two weeks in, it went from 12 boxes to 17. About two weeks in, it was about 20 boxes. And uh, there was one order that we didn't recognize. And I, 
It's a really good question. No, no one has asked me that since we started, but it's made me remember that I distinctly remember being sat there in the really early days going from 20 to 40 to 60 to 100. And every time we would get excited by these names that we didn't know, yeah, it'd be like, Rob, do you know who this is? Miles, is this one of your... I think it's mum's friend. No, yeah. it's not. No, it's not actually. Wow. And it was those first consumers coming in who had no idea who we were, which we were, which we absolutely loved. It got you so excited that there was people out there who had no connection to you. Yeah. Who were just willing to purchase the product that you you created. I, I, I remember the feeling. Three. It actually came as a, a you know, you wait, for, you wait for a bus and then two. Three clients ordered from the same office in Knightsbridge. And I was like, I was determined to... to to find out that I actually knew someone who knew them or something I just couldn't try to find out and eventually I just said like wow these are these are people that have found this thing out in the wild so Absolute like it strangers. works right I just yeah. need to keep repeating what I've just whatever they've done and whatever I've done need to keep yeah. repeating that it's a good feeling in the early days it really yeah. is um, so what were the biggest challenges back then? Um, I think number one for us number one uh, that we the thing we really underestimated was capital the need for capital in a perishable food business. I think that's probably the number the number one thing because we assumed that our reserves would last um, a long time and what we saw was the numbers flying, going really well. I would say in the first nine months it was beta phase and it was just in London. We didn't deliver outside. Yeah. We drove the vans ourselves, we packed everything ourselves. Um, and it wasn't flying. It was it was growing nicely, but it wasn't mm. flying. It was only when we got our first injection of capital. But that would be the biggest learning was just wow. You ne- you just need a, f- a fair amount of capital to start a business that mm. that is is a completely reliant on a lot of moving parts and yep. being operationally very complex. There's only so long that the three of us can sit there packing at six a.m. to six p.m. on a Saturday and Sunday, and it- then going to the office and doing the marketing and the finance and the it's a misconception that suddenly, you know, a pound comes in, you re- reinvest and that just fuels the growth. It's, it's, it's a near inevitability, certainly in, in certain businesses. You know, if you're a lightweight digital marketing, you're in a co-working hot desk for £150 a month, it's, yeah. it's different. Yeah. But, um, so you mentioned the injection of capital, um, December 15. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, where did that come from? And, and, how, and how was that first kind of foray into, <laughs> into begging for I've money? Still, I've still got the photo on my phone. Of, Amazing. Of, um, Miles, myself, and Rob raising a glass. Um, Fantastic. Yes, where were we? Somewhere in maybe Chelsea or Fulham. We don't normally go around there, but um, the investor lived there. So what happened was we we were I don't know six months in, and um, we just had an email out the blue from um, to our hello at Mindful Chef email address. Interesting. Email out the blue. Just said hi. I'm such and such. I I'm an investor, but I'm also. Uh, uh, chairwoman and um, major shareholder in a number of businesses and I also own a, a high-end gym chain in London um, could we have a chat I've, I've been using your service and a number of my uh, instructors in my gyms and my clients um, have been using your service and rave about it and we think we think you're onto something quite exciting so um, can we have a chat completely out of the blue we met them and it was a bit like Dragon's Den it was her and her husband and we met them over the course of uh, probably three months and um, eventually agreed uh, a £150,000 injection into the business. Um, it, classic, like Dragon's Den, it was, we want 50% of the business, and we're, and we're like, no, no, you can have 5%. <laughs> you know, the, the age, so that's what the three months, mm. um, that's, where, that's where the three months are eaten up by, by ensuring that we, we had what we thought was a fair valuation. 
those guys came in and as a result we decided to form a board the best one of the best things we ever did was do that quickly um, really quickly um, and as a result of that we were thinking well we need someone else and I, I knew um, the former global chief strategy officer for Interbrand who was a family friend um, well family but uh, long distance relative and I just called him up and just said hi you, uh, I know you're, you're maybe close to retiring he said do you know what I'm really interested because I've just retired so he moved back from Shanghai a kind of marketing and brand guru he was the right hand man to Tony Blair uh, re reshaped and um, rebranded New Labour in the uh, late 90s wow. relaunched them so great marketing eye um, and he came on board and he said I'd love to be on the board and also I'd like to invest so he put he put 50 and the other guys put 100 <coughs> so that's where the 150 came from right and fantastic it was way earlier than we expected yeah and even then we were thinking even then we were naive enough to think oh we don't you know this is great this is going to help us grow but um we won't need to raise for a while you know and i think that was probably the turning point was we kind of paused for a second had the glass of champagne and were blown away by you know 150 grand it was we were we were just kind of stars in our eyes thinking how has someone just invested this in our business that's nine months old and by the time the deal went through and um, I, I actually can't remember the revenues we were doing but they were pretty negligible mm. um, it's a big punt you know I still look back and thank those people because it's a big punt when you're doing tiny revenues um, and uh, prime SEIS territory oh, for prime SEIS yeah, yeah. The, 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 um, the thanks for that the um, level of risk yeah, yeah. Is, is vastly uh, vastly decreased when, yeah. you, when you factor in SEIS and loss relief etc but um Still, they had to write a check, and they were keen, and um, we got them on board. How did you decide the valuation? I mean, other than other than them saying fifty-one, <laughs> yeah, and you yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. saying one, yeah, yeah, correct. Um, it's, it is so early, and, and I know it's a very common question. Other than licking your finger and sticking it in the air, how, how did you decide a valuation back then? Um, we actually just looked at the market. We looked at uh, where others in the market had raised um, on what multiples, essentially, of revenues. Um, we took our run rate and we uh, took a fair market multiple to be fair to the investors they also took a fair market multiple so we weren't too far off at, in the end once we realised that we weren't going to budge too much and they weren't we just met at um, I think at the time it might have been I can't remember back then but it was it, it was uh, quite easy to land on that because there was a number of companies not just in the UK to be fair in the States as well uh, with public funding rounds that you could just compare to mm. so that's how we found that and then thereafter we used these guys who were um, at least half of the board were extremely experienced these investors in in financing rounds and funding rounds so whenever we did a future one which I guess we'll get on to um, they were our, our voice and, and actually I'd say voice of reason as well they did not yeah. they weren't ridiculous with their with their valuations which is probably mm. why we've been successful. And I guess they just introduced a certain rigour and robustness to the kind of financial yes. reporting of the business. Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so before we before we move on to the, those subsequent rounds, where, where how was that money deployed from, from that first round? Um, so that was in December 15, and uh, it, it just so it's very fortuitous timing. We actually um, went into our, our best time of year um, for a, a healthy uh, food brand. January is obviously the best time of year, new year, new me, etc. Um, so it was that was the very first time, January 2016, where we actually spent a little bit of money. And I remember it was a couple of hundred quid here, 
500 quid there and it was largely on Facebook and um, Facebook adverts uh, and PPC and we just trialed them and then we thought okay and this was us no no agencies just us in the dashboard getting our head around it um, setting up different segments setting up different audiences lookalike profiling etc etc and we were we did that ourselves um, and very quickly realized that you can find customers <laughs> so we we're like okay wow I mean these budgets were tiny mm. but you know being able in your attribution models to just go oh I can clearly see the click-through rate is this the CPM is this the CPA is this and so and so very quickly we started I think the numbers were about. We started growing fairly quickly. We started the year that year on 200, 200 boxes a week, and by the end of January we were at four hundred and fifty. So we had doubled in size in one month, and that's when we realised, okay, wow, this is what capital can do. And that was the, I guess that was the first realisation. It was like, okay, you really can start scaling if you have money in the bank. Mm. Um, Did the ops? I mean, that 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 kind of growth. How, how were you operationally able to keep up with that? Being really brutally honest, because this, is this isn't the bit that your friends see and, and customers see on Instagram, it was absolutely hideous for us. Yep. We, um, as I'm sure actually yours was in the early days, it, it's so challenging. Um, from, for that year, we, we scaled, operationally speaking, it was just the three of us and one friend. So by this time, by when that funding round uh, in fact, before the funding round had come in, we had a guy called Gareth, who was our uh, Rob's mate, and um, he was a, a, a guy from Wales who we persuaded to move to London and help us handle the ops. And the four of us just would do 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every Saturday, every Sunday for probably 18 months straight, um, with a few, you know, a few cycles of like, we I need a day off, otherwise I'm just this can't go on. Um, and that was really difficult, going from 200 to 400. It would be conversations like, oh, but I thought you ordered, I thought you ordered those extra boxes. Come on, are we not looking ahead with our forecasts? Right, well, let's scrabble around to find some plain cardboard boxes to ship out the produce in, things like that, literally yeah. at the last minute on a Sunday, and then driving around southwest London looking for a box. Uh, you know, at one point, we nearly had to use big yellow storage and say, can we buy some of your boxes and send out our food in massive yellow cardboard wow. boxes so it was, it was that you know it was that to the wire in the early days yep. um, and we scaled the operations ourselves adding a friend here a friend there at, at weekends we scaled that to about a thousand boxes um, which was almost breaking point for us in all honesty it I imagine real, it was a real low point um, the business was doing this fl flying on paper but um your state of mind. Your state of mind <laughs> is just like, wow, I, I can't do everything. I can't, you know, you want to do everything, but you can't. And yeah. so that got us, yeah, that got us about a thousand boxes. Then we had to have a... Would, would you, or, or knowing them as well as you do, you do would, would Miles or Rob have done it on their own? Um, I think both of, who, both of them are capable of doing, of running any business, a, a number of businesses on their own. I don't think any of us could have run the starting up of a recipe box on their own. And the reason I say that is just the, sim it's not the marketing, it's not- The moving not, parts. Yeah, the it's the operational complexity of a recipe box. It's, we've just launched another range, which I guess we'll talk about later, uh, which is frozen. It's just so much easier, so much easier. You produce a product and it can sit in a deep freeze and it's a, a um, pick and pack model. The recipe boxes are 
just insane, insanely complex operationally. Mm. And and so I don't think I don't think any of us could could have done it. Um, on our own in the early days, it would just been too difficult. So we, we have got ahead of ourselves there. So um, from a from a product, you know, put your marketing standing on a stage in, in front of a thousand people. Uh, what what where is the product at nowadays, and 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 how how do you give us the spiel of of, of Mindful Chef and what you offer? So I, I guess our tagline used to be the Healthy Recipe Box Company, and we 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 were solely focused on producing healthy, delicious recipe boxes, fresh produce delivered to your door, but always we had this ambition that Mindful Chef could be far broader. It could, if it wanted to, it doesn't currently, but it could go into retail. Um, it, we definitely want to grow the core business being online, D2C, but um, we always wanted to have other ranges. And in the early days, we got very excited and carried away. And luckily we had a board to keep us on the straight and narrow, but consumers would say, I love your ethos, your values, your sourcing, all these amazing suppliers that you're being very transparent about. Um, the fact that you give 20% larger meat and fish portions, that your chicken's free range, etc. Could you not transfer these values into other lines? So people are asking us for smoothies or healthy snack bars or you name it, breakfast, lunch, everything was, was requested. And we, we were like, well, we can do smoothies, let's go. Yeah. And it, in fact, actually, that was the best thing about having a board was they just kept you focused on the core proposition mm. and said to us guys down the line this can come but you'll just trip over don't bother just shiny new toy don't try and be everything to everyone yeah focus on what you're good at now and then down the line you can branch out into multiple categories so so now three and a half years four years on um we have uh the fresh range of which there's 16 recipes every single week that change every single week. Um, that's evolved from the original two that we launched with to 16. Um, within that, we have launched a 15-minute range, which is really, really popular with busy city folk particularly. Um, and we've also got six of those recipes every week are vegan, uh, mm. the rest are meat and fish. And then we've also just launched uh, desserts. So DIY, make your own home at home desserts. Again, healthy. Um, packed in the same warehouse you, you chocolate avocado mousse for example we would send you the avocado and the cocoa etc <coughs> um, and then we've just launched a frozen range which is really exciting because of all the things I've just mentioned that one is the one that is flying and very it's very easy to scale as well far easier than the recipe box um, we've got we've, we're having calls coming in from some of the retailers saying we love the values we love the ethos would you would you pop this in and we're deciding which ones and whether um, interesting mainly because we like controlling the customer data but um, and, and not being squeezed for margins at every opportunity like yeah. I hear is so often the case. Yeah, I mean, I speak to a lot of brands that actually regret going into retail. Mm. Everyone, I mean, you, I guess you have to put it, put it, I mean, economically, it's obviously a volume play, but I think you definitely have to make sure you're putting ego to one side when you make that decision. I think that's, that's a really good bit of advice to anyone, putting mm. the ego thing aside, mm. um, because it's very tempting. But if you're not going to make any money off it and... Yeah, one of the big boys is going to squeeze you. It's difficult. <coughs> so where's um, just just where you are now? Then you mentioned that that um, the, the the frozen range is exciting. Are there how what how's the vegan range going? Because that's obviously such a such an area at the moment of growth. Is that is that something that's kind of grown to a certain position? Are people kind of adopting the flexitarian approach? What what kind? Of, I guess what kind of um, flexibility do you have within your um, ordering process that gives you a bit of data on what people are actually choosing. Yeah, so we've got we've now got um, 
actually this this high was very recent last month we've got now got an in-house data scientist that's a sexy role by the way that's sexy cool to have that yeah, yeah that's very sexy cool. role <laughs> top guy as well he loves it he was at the cricket yesterday uh he now provides that insight in 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 real time we used to use an agency for our data um in, the, in answer to the vegan question, so we track a lot of metrics very closely and we look at the data very closely. In answer to the vegan question, it's growing. Last year, it was 10% of our customer base were pure vegans based on their purchases, at least with Mindful Chef. Uh, this year, it's 12%. What's interesting is put, putting the pure vegans to one side is the flexitarians. Mm. That shift has been even bigger. So as we've gone through the years and we've launched one vegan dish, then two, and now up to six, uh, that's been really interesting. Loads, loads of meat and fish eaters have been switching across. So they're having one meat and fish, one vegan dish, or two meat and fish, one vegan dish a week. Um, and that number has only increased. So at the moment, it's about 42% of the customer base will have one vegan dish a week alongside their meat and fish. Um, and that's only increasing. And the interesting thing is, I think it's quite simply because, excuse the pun, but we've just put it on a plate for them. We put it in their account when they're looking on their phone or online on, on the desktop and they can see these vegan dishes right next to meat and fish ones going that looks yum that looks okay might, might give it a go why why not just have one night a week i mean i look at my mum and dad they they never used to to eat any meat and two veg right yeah meat and yeah. two veg and now when i when i speak to them they're literally having two vegan dishes a week oh we love the tofu we love the tempeh we love this we love that we love the jackfruit and i'm like they get a good discount Half, half decent <laughs> not as good as they not as good as they were like we've got to make some money <laughs> yeah no it's an interesting point isn't it and I, I think I guess you are you're, you're a company that is, is is having a big impact by introducing the convenience element there um, and saying that you know ethics and, and sustainability aside um, the, the war is going to be won if you call it a war when it is really, really easy and when people can't distinguish between a, a chicken curry and a jackfruit curry and when they enjoy the taste of both and also when the education piece is done and we realise we, we don't need to be eating meat five yeah. times a day you know, or else we'll fall over and crumble up. Um, I mean, is that... I mean, we'll come on to it in a second with the, with the B Corp, which I think is fantastic. But is that a big part of what of your... You know, when you have those kind of strategic board decisions, you know, are, are you conscious of your, the part you're playing in that sustainability movement, in the, in the, in the vegan, in the ethical side of eating? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, one of our largest investors, pre our uh, latest private equity round, one of the largest investors was an, was an individual, and he only invested on one condition, that um, we were registered as a B Corp. After a certain time, I think it was a year he gave, because um, it's quite a long process to become accredited. And, and secondly, that um, values and ethics ran through ran through the business as the backbone. Fortunately for, for us, we were already working with three charities. We had already set out on the B Corp um, journey, um, which is why he was interested in the first place. Mm. But in terms of the food side of things, yeah, it, it feels quite powerful. Ultimately, if you just take the vegan, vegan dishes as an example, people find it quite um, daunting to make vegan dishes. If you've eaten chicken and fish and uh, red meat all your life and pork, it's just a bit, wow, where do I start? Can I really make a filling, tasty dish without any um, animal products? And so we just make it easy. You, mm. just, you literally just put it on their lap, quite simply, and you just go, 
there you go. There's the ingredients and there's a recipe card. Just follow the instructions and in 15 minutes you'll have your dinner made from fresh ingredients that's good for you and good for the environment. And as a result, more and more people are adopting it. It takes yeah. time. but of, they... of course, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that... Um, Putting ethics and 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 you know the the you know not eating an animal to one side the big the big wins in sustainability will be in that market of flexitarian as we move to meat free Monday and then you know etc. Um, but you mentioned um, for anyone uh, that, that doesn't understand, um, let's dive into the B Corp thing because I, I think I mean firstly congratulations because I know this Cheers, is not yeah. something that gets thrown around like some kind of like random stamp um run us through it uh, and let us know how many other companies out there roughly that you know have this sure this privilege of, of saying that so b corp stands for b corporation um whenever we do a talk on stage um miles my co-founder gets really excited about it starts talking about it really really quickly and then I've, i'm just like two seconds can i have a show of hands as to who actually knows what a b corp is and five percent of the audience <laughs> put their hands up no one knows what it is um so it's really important to explain because it's quite a new con relatively new concept um it's it stands for b corporation and it is uh, an, a movement and but a, a an official accreditation whereby businesses are focusing on three p's not just one p so you're focusing on people planet and then profit not just profit and it's using business as a force for good so in our case, it took us about a year to be accredited. Um, the B Corp guys uh, push put you through these rigorous tests. So they'll come and visit you as an example of one of the many, many tests and exams and um, hour-long calls we had with them uh, to be accredited. Uh, you basically get scored. You have a, a, a ranking with points and uh, they'll come to your office and they'll look at your lights and see if they're energy saving. They'll look at whether you have a bike rack outside for your staff to cycle to work. They'll look at, they'll audit your entire, in, in our case, food business, they'll order your entire supply chain, look at the carbon footprint, look at the suppliers you're using, are they ethical? Is what you're saying true? Because lots of businesses it isn't. Mm. So if you're saying it's all free range grass fed, whatever, is it? Because they're gonna go and check. Um, and then right through to um, our charitable status, um, our, uh, how much we give to charity, um, well-being of employees, really wow. important. Really important to them is well-being of employees and, and making sure that everyone is looked after. There's not huge disparities, so we have to give up all salaries. We have to make sure we present how many females versus males are in the company, um, uh, what level of females at board level, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it's across the board. It's, wow. it's a fascinating... Yeah process it took us a year and, and actually miles did it largely and I, I remember him going off on these calls for like literally two hours long every time going through the the accreditation process and, and once you once you pass or fail um you become a b corp or you don't um and then you have to continually improve you won't just get like score of 81 and then that's it you have to they'll continually assess and so you have to make sure that you're always bettering mm. yourself so w was there any areas that despite getting the the you know effectively the accreditation the, the the stamp or whatever you were weak and they they kind of said you know you need to you need yeah, to work on this guys. i mean the the one big area is uh recipe boxes in general but but us because no none of the recipe boxes pure play recipe boxes are b corps it's just us but it's the packaging yeah so um there's actually been a huge study done by the university of michigan in the last six months which is just analyzed recipe boxes um in in the states but similar models versus well. a grocery shop versus a grocery shop 
across everything. So across the the impact that a consumer driving to the store would have. Um, wow. Fuel consumption. Interesting. And grocery bo- um, grocery boxes, <laughs> recipe boxes, uh, won by a considerable margin. But you kind of have to forget that if you're in my shoes because consumers perceive the packaging thing All as a real issue. All this packaging, yeah. Yeah, so what we get consistently and what obviously the B Corp guys picked up on was great idea to cutting out, cutting out the middlemen, cutting out a long supply chain, going straight from farm to fork. Even better idea that you can uh, now, because you've got clever algorithms that you've built, um, even better that you can forecast almost exactly what you need on a weekly basis. So unlike supermarkets, you're not saying this huge Tesco in Croydon goes through X many apples a week, so we're going to order in and there will be wastage because guess what? It's a bit of a guessing game across every single range. With us, we order exactly what we need and we just have a cutoff every week. So so we have less than 1% wastage. And, Amazing. and that wastage, if it's tins, it can be reused, obviously. Um, and if it's anything fresh, it goes straight to a local charity called Fair Share who distribute to the homeless. Fantastic. And that's normally running at like 0.25%. It's super low. Congratulations. So, that, so that's, they love, that's very cool. So it was a big, it was a big tick there. But, yeah. the, but the negative for B Corp was there's a lot of plastic, guys. Like there's a lot of stuff in your boxes, which to preserve things and keep, keep produce fresh, there's a lot of tubs and spice pots and whatnot. So that's where there was a big X. And that's where we've um, been working really hard, actually. We're working with some PhD students at the moment um, on a project to reduce our impact there. And it, it's not just B Corp, consumers look at it and they just open up the box and go, love the idea, but guys, this feels a bit wasteful, even yeah. though 90% of it is recyclable or made from recycled materials. It's still, when you look at it, you just go, oh, it looks quite a lot. Actually, comparatively, if you take... You do that comparison that the university did on your behalf. Yeah, yeah. You no. take a bag of spinach, well, guess what? Guess how you get your spinach in the supermarket? It's still in a perforated plastic bag. I think it's the in, I think it's the open the box at once and see it 100%. all impact. Yeah, I mean, there's some some great stuff happening with 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 packaging. You know, even the kind of move to more to better versions of plastic. Um, but I think you're you're right. We've um, we've just found it's quite exciting. Hot off the press, just found a fully compostable. It looks like plastic to you and I, but fully compostable um, uh, liner that can go basically packaging for meat. Interesting. So at the moment, that's one of our big ones. Is you know, chicken breasts will come on just like supermarket. They'll come on a come in a plastic tray with a seal over the top. We've just found a a packaging supplier that is fully compostable. So we're testing it now. Congratulations! Um, Love it. That kind of thing is really awesome, and that, yeah. will, that will change it for us. And I, I guess putting your, you know, when you have those, I assume that's an investment. You know, you have to spend the time yeah. to find these yeah. things. And I assume it's not the cheapest thing out there because yeah. the big no. boys aren't using it. Yeah. Remains the point of distinction and closes the door yeah. on any kind of anyone owning your space. right? Yeah. And if we can continue to like push those boundaries, mm. um, you know, if I was one of the bigger boys in our space, so one of the big recipe boxes with Take Gusto have raised 100 million USD, I would just be putting an entire team on it. We can't afford to, but I would be. I'd just be like, wow. At the moment, mm. we're using PhD and our own internal grit to make sure we can. It's only going one way. Yeah, exactly. It it's is. not. Yeah, you're bang on. I mean, look at the straws. Across, yeah. You know, very that's happened. I mean, it, I, one I, or two years max. Yeah. Really. Plastic straws. Like, I, I think you know. I mean, we're we're in the London bubble here. You know, we're sat literally 
three what? meters away from bank yeah, 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 you know, yeah coming from Cornwall Devon I imagine we'd find a few plastic straws down there still um, but it's happened quickly yeah. isn't it yeah it has it's, yeah. it's really interesting funny you say that about because I there was a cafe I was in um, Alderborough um, went to a friend's place in Alderborough the other weekend and um, they had a, a cafe with um, with paper straws but they had a little a little um, I thought it was a really good idea they had a pot outside um, a rubbish bin Next to it, there was a sign and litter pickers, and it just said, "For anyone who comes back with a goes to the beach with one of these litter pickers, fills up a, just a bucket which wasn't that big of plastic, brings it back to us. We'll give you a free tea or coffee." Great idea. And I was like, "This is slowly moving outside London, slowly, but it's yeah. but it's awesome to see that kind of thing." I love that. I almost wanted to go and start my own cafe with that, yeah, with that yeah, concept. Yeah. yeah, take a sabbatical. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned some of the, the subsequent rounds. So, so stepping through those very quickly, there was um, two crowdfunding rounds, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, you, actually, sorry, no, I'm doing you a disservice here. There was something I wanted to, another thing I almost want to kind of congratulate you on. You have a, effectively a one-for-one initiative, don't you? Yeah. 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 T- tell us about that. I think, I think this, is, this is so commendable. Yeah. Yeah. We, don't actually, we don't actually talk about it enough. Loads of customers don't even know it exists still, even though we put it on the boxes and on the bag and everything. But we work with a charity called one feeds two they are an awesome quite new awesome charity um they're only three guys and the three guys are kind of you're my age and they all work in the city so it's it's a charity like it's not their day job they do it on the side they take no salaries from it they set up one feeds two and they now work with byron burger uh cook and us so they're pretty small um there's a few others smaller businesses who work with them now um the name's great, it's very catchy, and I think they're really on something here because we found them by chance. And then what it means is for every meal we sell, so we're doing about 40,000 a week-ish meals, um, for every meal, every single week, not just your first box, or but every single week, we'll, do, we'll donate a meal to a child living in poverty. So at three one fees two. Um, for us, it's very easy. We simply make a donation to the charity at the end of every month. We They audit our accounts, make sure that what we say we're doing, we are doing, the number of meals versus the donation. Um, we'll then pay that to the charity, and then they will then go and use uh, the World Food Programme and other uh, other charities linked to them on the ground, and they'll reach kids in, in our case, with our volumes, it's Malawi at the moment, and uh, they'll be donating school meals to kids in poverty. The amazing thing is um, that it's not just, a, not just a meal, it's a school meal, so they have a real problem with getting kids off the street. So this is... Oh. hitting two birds with one stone because it's, it's education as well as as well as feeding hungry kids so it's brilliant we only, we only started doing it about 18 months ago and we've just passed through um, a million meals donated I saw that on your website yeah um, we're on like 1.2 now because we're moving quickly now but we're on like 1.2 million meals and, and so actually as it happens two weeks three weeks ago I went to Malawi for the oh, first time fantastic um, nice. we've, been, we've been asking for a while if we could go and, and see the impact on the ground and it was honestly one of the most humbling heartwarming things I've ever ever witnessed we went there for 48 hours myself Miles and then we took our videographer because um, we really want and, a photo- and he did some photography as well because we really wanted to show the impact that our customers were having to our customers because they did mm. they, a lot of them still weren't really completely clued up about what it was and we spent 48 hours there and it was we visited two massive schools of primary and secondary and it was really emotional it was I mean the first thing that I realized very quickly was we weren't just supplementary I thought we were supplementary these meals when I asked the teacher when I was watching them being um, served up 
in the morning, the teacher was like, I said, how, how many of these kids rely on this meal as their only one per day? And the teacher said, oh, about 60% of these kids, this is their only meal every day. And, it's, and, uh, and when they get home, they'll have nothing. And I was like, mm. really? She said, yeah. And in, in the months where the crops are, it's difficult to, to get um, a good yield from the crops. So I think it's Jan, Feb, March every year. She was like, it's about 90% of these kids. This is their life, li literally their lifeline. And it was mind blowing. These kids with no shoes on, mm. walking to school for two hours. And apparently, since the guys like One Feeds Two and, the, and have been working in the World Food Programme and these charities on the ground. School attendance. School attendance. The government have reported school attendance. And even more so, the government asked if these charities should do it in the morning, not lunch, to get kids in, get them in early. Um, and it's it was just mind blowing, and and yet these kids were so, they were so ha literally the happiest humans I've met, the happiest humans I've met because they had this one hot meal, and that was it. But they were so happy. They were just like, do you know what? It's the simple things, and they were just happy to be in school mm. and learning. Um, I mean, that's really. I mean, it's really commendable. But like, shout out to One Feeds Two for, for oh, these for, guys, yeah. those guys are brilliant. Oh, that's awesome as well. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm. I, I'd love to think that all businesses can adopt that. You know, it does need the people at the top to say, do you know what? Like, I don't need that watch. <laughs> you know what? Like the the extra kind of like couple of grand at the end of my paycheck, whatever it is. You know, I, I actually left. Um, we were told not to bring individual items to give to the kids because otherwise you have squabbling, obviously, if you take a T-shirt, give it to one of them, it's unfair. Um, so we took out some footballs um, and we presented these footballs and a teacher just cried in front of us because... The kids currently use plastic bags wrapped up in a ball with tape to play football. And we turned up with these 10, whatever they were, nice footballs that we had ordered in the UK and a pump. And they were just blown away. And um, I actually ended up leaving. I just couldn't. I was so I found it so powerful that when we checked out of our little lodge, I left the, the kitchen porter. I noticed had basically his, his feet were coming through his shoes. I was like, what are these shoes to me? So I left these shoes. I uh, left two pairs of shoes and a couple of t-shirts and I was like do you know what we have so much mm. and it's a really obvious thing to say when you're sat here in central London but we do have so much and yeah. little things make a big change there was a backpack project as well which shout out to a charity called Mary's Meals who we, who we visited and they do a backpack project so they get kids in the UK or families in the UK to donate one backpack a year I think it is um, they collect these backpacks and they just ask for a pair of flip flops for the kids um, a tennis ball to play with uh, t-shirt a few other things a towel I think and a backpack and I saw these warehouses full of backpacks sent from Glasgow and, and London whatever and I thought that's brilliant and I actually saw it in practice with the kids they were like they, you know you'd have this little guy probably a five year old boy and he would have this huge pink backpack and he'd be so proud of it and they wouldn't put their backpacks down so it was really, yeah, it was really powerful it was awesome and hopefully we can continue to kind of push that message and, and also encourage bigger guys out there to do it yeah you know it's that it's, yeah it's wrong for me to say why don't people like prep do it they have their own charities they yeah. definitely have amazing csr functions but for me there's so many f food um institutions and restaurants and online companies i think one fees two is the absolute perfect yeah. opportunity for them because it I just it makes it makes consumers understand that they, they can eat healthily with, with us but they can also do good in the world mm. yeah no i love it um we raced ahead of self, um, so let's 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 get back there. Um, the rounds to because you've gone through four rounds yeah. uh, of investment. Um, 
rounds two and, and, and three, let's kind of group those together because um, they were both crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be, be good to know why you chose that platform, um, how time-consuming it was, whether it was difficult, uh, how much you reached into your existing client base. A um, couple of uh, juicy names mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. joined joined your, your kind of wider team, as it were. Mm. Um, so, yeah, run us, run us through the process of crowdfunding generally. So uh, we first crowdfunded on Cedars in July or August 2016. Um, that was on the advice of our investors who invested previously, who said, guys, the growth's going brilliantly, but you're going to need to raise and um, let's keep on, <coughs> excuse me, let's keep this momentum. So uh, we went to Cedars and Crowdcube. I, a good friend of mine was at Crowdcube. We decided to go to Cedars. He was really annoyed. Um, they gave us, I think, just a bit more love and TLC at that stage. Um, but I think both platforms are brilliant. And we decided we're going to go down the crowdfunding route. We had spoken to a number of VCs, VCTs, a few PE funds. We were tiny at the time. Our revenues were, at the time of the Cedars raise, were less than uh, well under a million um, annualised. And... Number one, the guys weren't that interested, the, the big VCs and the, uh, the PE funds, um, and pretty much all institutional capital um, wasn't on the table at the time. We were just a bit too small. Um, we, re- we ended up going on, crowd, on, crowd, on uh, Cedars crowdfunding, and um, we were quite nervous because, to be honest with you, it was to answer the question about how, what level of investment in terms of time and how much time did it take, it was a sh- huge amount of time. We started thinking about raising in... February of that year um, and we basically had February, March, April, May, June five months of just meeting everyone that we could in the city to say, uh, and not just in the city but friends and family, we just said look we're going to raise, we would love to raise half a million pounds um, that's our target uh, we've agreed a valuation with Cedars that we're happy with Cedars basically give you advice, just like Crowdcube their analysts do, and, and it was surprise, surprise, it was similar to our advice internally about multiples just be fair be real look at the market don't don't take the piss essentially which i think was one of our keys to successes successful campaigns was we didn't go in there and go we're 10x 10x revenues um and then we we spent a hell of a lot of time i I actually have a a document i put together because i get so many emails about crowdfunding from other entrepreneurs saying oh what how did you find that money um because the thing that the thing that crowdfunding sites don't really publicize is You've got to go and find at least twenty five percent yourself before before you're on the anchor investors, yeah. Yeah, the anchor investors, and so we were looking for these anchor guys, and um, and we 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 the the honest answer was we just rolled up our sleeves and met absolutely everyone. You know, it was actually mates who in the early days it was mates who were like, "Yep, yeah, I'm in." But this spreadsheet where we were trying to build, we said we wanted five hundred k, set the target at four hundred because that's what you do on crowdfunding, and then you overfund. Um, so we said, right, Cedars basically said, look, you've got to find 100. Um, they didn't put it in those words, but that was basically what it was. Uh, it took us so long to find people. It was like a fre- one friend might commit five, one might commit 10. But we just couldn't find guys. It mm. took so long. And eventually we had a couple of interested parties through friends of friends, literally, who said, oh, I like it. Good pitch deck. Great video. Um, good team. Seemed like you've executed well. Okay. And we had one person come in for 50 grand. And that was the... That okay. was the moment. Right. And we were like, okay, let's, let's just go for it. We haven't got 100, but let's go for it. And we launched the, the, fund, the campaign on Cedars, um, and it just went nuts. It, 
for us, we're very fortunate, nuts in the right way. We had just donations, just donations, investments just poured in, um, predominantly from the customer base. We, we did execute very well. We spent a lot of time filming uh, in Devon, went back to our roots, filmed all the suppliers, where the business started, filming in London, used a great videographer, filmmaker. Um, we put together a very comprehensive pitch deck and financials. So we were, you know, we, it was a buckled up campaign and it was very well thought through. It did take us a good five months to get to that point. But still, the, the vast majority just came from customers just ringing us up and saying, hey, I've just seen the email or I've just seen, we did a little campaign in the boxes as well. So some nice booklets in the boxes. Um, you know, friends were just, friends who are customers would pop in and do his five grand, his 10 grand out of the blue. but. But more than that, it was the bigger guys who were customers who we'd never met. Who one guy said, "Can I meet you for a, for a coffee in um, in Central tomorrow morning?" Because I can see it's going well. We met this guy, and he said he just sat down without even looking through financials and just said, "I'd like to invest two hundred. And we were like, two hundred pounds?" He's like, "No, two hundred thousand." And he just said, "Me and me and the wife have used you for nine months, and we love it. We think it's the future." And um, there was a few big guys like that and then there was Andy Murray and Sir Andy Murray sorry and Victoria Pendleton CBE who both came out the woodwork Sir Andy invests in Cedars rounds um, he I think he has a connection to Cedars and he so he invests uh, a, a fair amount of money through a number of businesses um, on Cedars but only ones that he's really sure of mm. or believes in so for us it was a healthy eating side um, and him and Kim started using the boxes, which was great. And Victoria Pendleton was just a customer we didn't know. She had used, used uh, another name and she just rang us up, just rang the office and said, guys, I'd really like to invest. So it was brilliant. And that, that seed is round. We, we ended up raising just over a million in 10 days. With a and 400 target? 400 target. Wow. 500 in our head. Yep. Um, and in all honesty, we were thinking, God, if we hit five, amazing if we hit six dreamland but to hit a million and at the moment it was 10 days so we stopped it and took it down because we didn't want to give away any more equity in the business um we decided wow and then that was a real turning point of the business because we got some good pr off the back of the two celebrities investing um and that you know crowdfunding is nothing new anymore and so certainly you're not going to get that much coverage but we had a huge piece in the telegraph and the times just a picture of andy murray <laughs> Very nice. Murray, I mean, it's one, the Telegraph is one line, Murray invests in healthy eating startup. But the point is that that gave us that PR, that exposure, that halo effect to then build upon. Nice. And you went back? And we went back. We decided for the second round, we had interest from institutionals. Um, but we decided this the the momentum we got of crowdfunding as a D2C, particularly as a D2C business, if there's any D2C businesses out there listening, I think, do consider it because the momentum we got, we got 200 investors in the first round and then 600 investors, investors in the second round. And surprise, surprise, those investors also become customers and brand advocates. So you've got this kind of, this army of advocates just telling their friends and family. Shareholder client referrers. Yeah. <laughs> Who just like just super clients. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, yeah. they, they'll use the service, but they'll also just go and tell all their friends and family, you must try this. <laughs> and the one thing you know they'll never do is, you, is use HelloFresh, right? Yeah, correct, <laughs> correct. So you're kind of like, win-win. Um, yeah. So that second time we had been in contact with Crowdcube because they saw how successful the Cedars campaign was and um, Cedars was July 16. Um, we uh, were doing about a million revenues. We then, 18 months later-ish, uh, it was October 17, um, we decided to go on Crowdcube. Again, lots of planning, really thought through. Um, 
we were, at that point we we're doing 3.8 million annualized as uh, 18 months later and we decided we wanted wanted to raise in our head we really want it was massive we were like right let's go for let's go for about 1.2 1.3 so we set the target at, at one and ended up raising 2 million in 11 days again took it down um, and decided right that's enough equity mm. and that helped us really I think for us that was the big game changer wow because using that we and using both rounds but we really started rebuilding our tech to, to making sure that it was um, best in class helping us scale a lot of it went into marketing huge percentage of it went into marketing um, and we went from 3.8 in one year we went from 3.8 to 8 million revenues and that was that was the kind of springboard to say, look, this is there's there's people there's a market out there. Yeah. So a couple of couple of questions around this then. Um, <coughs> I, I guess you you it was it would have been very difficult to untangle the information about knowing what percentage of investors were already clients and what percentage of in, of non-client investors became a client. Did you was that did you try to track that? Did you track that? Yeah, we did actually. We had oh, a, really? we had a the first one. See, we just had a really simple spreadsheet because we we're still quite small. When we had the 195 names of investors at close, uh, we just matched them against uh, VLOOKUP and matched them against the... Really? So what were the number? What, what were <coughs> percentages? Something like 60% of... No, 65% of them were customers. 65% of people who invested were customers. Yeah. Do you know what percentage of your customer base invested? No, good question. Interesting. Good yeah. question. And the second question, this is a much bigger question. Um, are you are you conscious of, of of giving your investors a return? Is that something that is that something that weighs on mm. your shoulders? Yeah, it, it is actually. Particularly as quite a few of them are friends, and actually some friends took really big risks with us. And I said, I actually said, guys, I had to remind them. I was like, look, you've read the small print, right? Yeah, you could lose your money here. <laughs> like you could lose your money. There's loss relief and there's EIS on those latter rounds, but you could lose your money here. And 95% of startups fail. I don't know if that stat's still true, but it was when we started. So I was like, guys, <laughs> I can see what you're putting in. Just think about it. Um, <laughs> what a weird position to be in where yeah. they're basically, not literally, but pushing money over the table and you're, you're kind of trying to shove it back into yeah, the Yeah, I was kind of like, look, th it's great to have your backing and your belief and your, uh, your belief in the team as well, but just, just be careful. Um, I think the thing there is I've actually spoken to those guys obviously being friends fairly regularly with updates and how's it going and how's trading going um, and they seem really excited on this journey obviously we're growing very quickly so they it is all rosy at the moment but I do have in the back of my mind the feeling that I would love to give them all a return I would love to give them all a full exit one day but a, a return mm. or a partial return before that potentially um, I'm also conscious that when you look at other lots of crowdfunding sites and look at the businesses doing some, some don't make it obviously and mm. I'm conscious when you read the forums people are like or have that down round you know because they yeah. went for that crazy valuation yeah, yeah. have a down round so it, it's, it does weigh on you and yeah. I, I also think that there's scaling businesses early and burning through cash for growth um, but you've also got to be sensible. The unit economics have to stack up long term. And, uh, you know, I would love to be in a position where 
we can reach profitability quicker than some of our competitors? I mean, that's one of the things that amazes me about your space, you know, because, you know, HelloFresh, you know, they've, they've got some very public figures. I just cannot get my head sometimes around the, the, the percentage that their marketing spend occupies their revenue, the, the amount yeah. of cash they're burning. Um, and I, I, I don't look, yeah, and I basically look at those those guys and think, fair enough, you're in a totally different ball game in terms of you're going for a land grab. You're going for a massive land grab and it's a big punt and you've got billions behind you. We don't and we will never be the, the big mass market player that they are. We will we want to be the healthy premium option and therefore it's, it's a far smaller market but we think a far stickier market and um, mm. the LTVs and the retention rates are proving so but um, I still want to reach profitability far quicker than any, anyone else because you want to have a sustainable business. Yeah. As, as my dad said back in the day, he said, business bank accounts, if they were doing well, used to go up, not down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, it's, that's a traditional way of looking at it. But I, I think it's really important that you focus on that. Yeah. I mean, we won't we won't dig into it because I can only assume it's 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 pretty confidential. But I I assume your LTV figures are much more impressive yeah, and we healthy do. than yeah, a lot we, of the other we, people we, in your um, space. We're quite open, to be honest, but we don't um, we don't publish the in-depth figures but i can say our retention after one year is around the 30 percent mark and that's almost that's a that's congratulations that's fucking and that's amazing. almost double than some of the other guys we are quite similar there's a company in the states called sun basket um they're basic their recipe box they're basically the same as us they do it's a bit more american so they do real specialist diets and plans on there but they're gluten-free they're dairy-free they have paleo options, vegan options, etc., and they're performing best in the states in terms of their unique, their sort of mm. their metrics, um, because and it was our hunch from the beginning of setting up the business. We we said if you provide, if you tick the convenience box and reducing the cognitive load box and all of those elements, like everyone else, great. But if you add that health, um, that health benefit, we just it was it was just a hunch that you get people who are just far stickier who would yeah. just say, do you know what? Everyone wants to be healthy. Well, most people do. And do you know what? You're just you're taking that pain point away from me. I'm happy to pay for it. Mm. And so that was our big play all along. Yeah. No, I I love it. And that retention figure is is really impressive in your space. Um, so the fourth round was your first institutional round, um, and it was it was with um, it was with a, a VC fund called Piper, correct? Yeah. Did they lead the round, or did did, did they did they fill the whole round? Filled the whole round. We had we had um, a couple of other interested parties, uh, external parties, and then um, we also had a couple of the internal uh, board members who mm. wanted to reinvest. So um, why Piper then? Piper, uh, number one, they are actually the first guys to reach out to us years ago. Um, uh, invited us in for a chat. When, um, when, when you actually, when you say reached out years ago, uh, what what stage? Um, around about the Cedars round. Really? Just a, just an initial conversation. Right, um, wow. Two and a half years. Yeah, two and a half yeah. years. Number two, very honest and open, uh, we felt. Very candid, um, genuine people. Mm. By that I mean they, when we first met them for, for conversations around the Cedars round, they didn't, they didn't do what a lot of PE funds do, which I think is ridiculous, and just string you along. They said, look, by the way, we, we, we only write this size tickets. We're not interested now. You're too small. But we would love to stay in touch. And they just laid their cards out and were very honest. Yeah, um, and so there are other P 
funds and VC funds and VCTs that were like that, but lots of kind of lots kind of string. They get you in, they want to extract information, and they kind of string you along where they have no intes- in, intention in investing. Yeah, um, no, I've, I've had the pl- I've had the pleasure of going in and speaking with them actually, and, and that 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 came across instantly. Actually, it came across to be honest in the comms beforehand. I just I yeah. just felt a, uh, like a human being on the other side. Not to speak disparagingly of other, you know, I mean, there's there's hundreds of them, but they they just felt. They feel like decent human beings, you know. Yeah, that's a re- it's a really good way of summarising it. They're, they're not sharks, um, but they are razor sharp. Mm. Is the way I describe them. Um, they're razor sharp. They have a proven track record with a number of good businesses. Um, they, I think, the big attraction aside from the fact that we knew them, we got on well with them, which is the number one thing for me. I think was um, their expertise in the. Uh, consumer-facing brand world, ecom. Um, they're strong, yeah. con- lovely consumer. Yeah, yeah, and they are very brand-focused. Mm. So it was perfect for us because we're my background. MC it was a lot of brand work, and the guy on our board uh, is a brand guru. And it, for us, it's all about building a brand that's a force for good and maintaining our unique premium position in the market. So yep. they were kind of the perfect match, to be honest. Um, nice. And so they invested six, yep. six million. God, so that's a chunk of money yeah 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 and and dropped a couple of guys onto the board yeah so two guys um how's that been i mean it's quite really? that that was just to, to set the scene the that round was january this year yeah. so four months ago we are now yeah yeah almost five, five yeah almost. um how, how's it felt really so it's been really positive um it's hard it's hard to comment uh because it's still early days but also because we've only had a We've, we've gone through a really good patch. So we started the year, our revenues were nine uh, million annualized at the start of the year, uh, just shy of 10, and we're now at 19 million annualized. So we've we've exploded out the blocks wow. in the first five months. And as a result, things are going well. So obviously by its very nature, <laughs> you're not going to be- Everyone's under, happy. Yeah, you're not going to be under as much pressure. But um, having said that, you, you go through ebbs and flows and we know our, it's a, we follow a cycle much like I guess mm. you guys did and, and the, the gym industry um, and uh, the one thing I say that I really value is um, the feedback and the, the the added value they bring in the board meetings um, there are uh, a lot of board meetings more than we've ever had before but they're asking the right questions they're prodding they're suggesting they don't just come with problems or challenges they actually have proactive suggestions. Mm, um, fantastic. One of the guys on the board uh, was ex-Maxi Muscle. Um, so he he has given us just small gems and insights, little, little tests we'll try on our paid channels. Um, and things like that, it's, that's where you really the, the real mm. value lies. These guys have they've been there, they've yep. done it. They know what they're doing, scaling businesses. And, um, and as you said, they're decent human beings. And and that is a, a perfect match. Amazing, that is amazing. Um, changing changing um, angle slightly. Um, what's your headcount at the moment? Uh, today <laughs> we've we've a year ago it was ten. It's thirty three full time now. Interesting. What so so what's the I guess what's a what is the hiring process? How have you found that challenges, wins, losses, missteps? But but what what. You know, what kind of culture have you tried to, to build in the firm? Um, I guess, first and foremost, it's been a challenge. Um, mainly because 
or none of us have ever run a business before. So um, hiring people, you have to get it right. And in a couple of cases, we haven't, but not many, it, to be honest. We've only had one person leave us, and that's put someone to go back to um, Devon. And sorry, recently someone's just moved to Brazil, but you know, mm. uh, they, they wanted to head back home. Um, it's a challenge because we don't have an HR department, we don't have an office manager, we don't have anyone looking at that. So it's it's all about us guys getting in and meeting these people. And if you're growing quickly, you're, I, I had a period in kind of February where I, I mean, my diary was just interviews the whole time. Um, and as I'm in charge of the marketing, I've got to make sure the business is still growing. So it's quite a challenge. But um, we basically have three, we have a set of values which we um, put together with our, our brand guy on the board, Leslie, and um, we, uh, we created these values maybe a year and a half ago um, for the business and everything we do, we put them as a lens over everything we do internally, hiring, Great. Um, performance, everything. And the values are mindful, personal and unafraid. And um, we just make sure that whenever we, we're sitting down with people in interviews that they tick those boxes. Mm. Um, and so far it's been pretty good. We, we have the values written on the walls so we can just refer back to them and it's a reminder so you don't forget them during the interview process yeah 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 <laughs> and uh and then yeah it's just i think it's really important because when you start i was about to say seeding control but that's not the right it's just not the right phrase at all when you start empowering others and giving autonomy and and allowing people to run with different areas of the business whether it's a cfo or growth marketeer or whoever um you've got to have someone who you can place immense trust in to deliver and to produce results quickly but also that they 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 fit within the dna of the business yeah and that's hard in a small business because in the early days it's just you and your mates hmm interesting so you mentioned you haven't really had too many missteps on the cultural uh, and and the hiring front what what would you say what would you say are some of the kind of biggest mistakes or um, you know areas that I, I, I guess if you if you don't feel you've made too many, um, maybe you know where you, you could have improved improved things. You know on your journey. What do you look back on? You well, think I wish I'd done that differently. There's one on the hiring front in that we, occasionally you get tempted to hire someone who is very big business in their approach. Um, so essentially on paper, extremely experienced, could do the role blindfolded. But they come in and um, aren't used to the pace, but also the kind of rolling up your sleeves nature of the startup or scale-up world. And therefore, they'll put in place loads of very sensible and perfectly reasonable and logical processes, for example. And you're just a bit too early for that. And they've had big teams underneath them before. So you have to really interrogate in the interviews. That, say, is an area we've made a little mistake and you've got to make sure that, I mean, put it this way, our best hires have been people who are a little bit experienced, but not very much, late 20s, young, hungry, super numerate, super switched on, but I think the key word there is hungry. If they want to, if they want to make an impact, they'll be great for you because they'll work really hard, they want to learn, they're keen to impress, and that's really important. Mm. Um, you I've often, I've often, um, w when I when I've hired people, I've had this 
the device in my head is a, a give a shitometer. And if I can register how much this person cares about themselves, the way they come across, how yeah. what do they think of me? Whether, you know, little things. Yeah. Were they punctual? How are they dressed? Eye contact? You know, all those little things, yeah. they add up to basically say, you know, again, I, I think it's, it kind of ties in what you said there a little bit. Yeah, it does. You're completely right. Mm. How about the other side? What, what, looking back, what are you most proud of about what you've, what you've built? It's, it sounds like there's an awful lot. The, the million meals, uh, you know, the 1.2 million meals, the B Corp, the, the culture, the, the, the fact you're fronting up and looking these big guys in the eyes. What, what are you most proud of? Um, I think most proud of is the million meals. Um, we're ra- rapidly ripping through that now. We're at 1.3. Because, particularly because I've now been out there and seen the impact. It's, it's tangible. It's, it, our customers are... We're enabling people in the UK to feel great about doing good, and it sounds quite corny, but that that is probably the most the, mm. the proudest achievement. For Not corny at all. I think I, I think just I think the people who go out and achieve stuff like that, they can say it without sounding yeah, corny. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> so okay, so that that's number one, I say. And then, interestingly, from like a, a kind of business perspective, quite proud of the way that Rob, myself, and Miles. Um, there was a lot of naysayers in the early days in the investment world. Um, basically, a pat on the back, good luck. You haven't got a cat in hell's chance of competing against Rocket Internet. Uh, HelloFresh, for those who don't know. Mm. Um, they're just ruthless. They will gobble up the market. So, so, so good luck. And the other guys are heavily, heavily back. So we wish you all the best, but you're never going to compete. Um, some quite brutal words in the early days. Um, and we were... and. Time and time again, we would say, no, no, we, we understand that. We're not naive. We know we've read all about Rocket Internet and the Samwares and how they operate. But um, just look at the proposition. It's different. And a lot of, a lot of these guys just couldn't see it. Mm. Thankfully, the consumers can see the difference. And we have people coming over in, in waves from the other two recipe boxes because people understand that we're not hiding behind like suppliers that are murky or we're giving mm. bigger, we're, gi- we're giving greater quality and we're removing all the sodgy carbs mm. um, and even some of the investors who didn't invest in the early rounds oh. didn't invest in the Piper uh, round weren't interested have now since come back to us and said uh, some of the bigger ones have been like can we have a chat now well that's yeah. validation in their yeah, mind yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. it someone it's, else getting in yeah, yeah. can we is have a chat because you, you <laughs> seem and I was like oh the, the, the product is differentiated enough now is it yeah 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 I, I love that and I guess if you don't if, if you don't hold the grudge again it, you know it's, no, it's exactly. being adult enough to walk away and, and leave that open yeah and to be honest I'm proud of it but you don't blame them also like, no it, of course it's, it's huge it's huge money. money capital you've got to respect that yeah they're money um, are, are, are HelloFresh Ex HelloFresh clients cheaper to acquire for you than because uh, the education piece yeah. has been done. Generally, yes, because of that one one point that you just made. It, it, they get it. They come to our site and they go, "That's exactly what I was looking for." But they're doing what I don't like about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're essentially, another recipe box. But I didn't like the fact I got pasta every week and stodgy carbs. These guys, oh yeah, and I was looking for for free range chicken. Well, I could never see that on the HelloFresh stuff, but now I know they're using this this farm, and so that's very easy because they just get it whereas yeah. trying to tell a new consumer about a recipe box is very difficult because yeah if i was to sit there and explain it and i do to people you have to you have to kind of say well it's a box it's kind of like your grocery shop but it's not really because it has recipe cards but bear with me because when you get the cards and they match exactly the right ingredients and there's no food waste and then you take it out of a bag and you put it in your fridge and you don't need to be in for delivery and blah 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 
the kind of the what of the product. Forget yeah. forget the the why that we're trying to get across and the how. It's just the what. People actually. I mean, in the early days, people thought we were a takeaway service. They just you know came to our site and would our, would would email after the delivery arrives and go. I thought you were just like a just eat. Sorry, I've got this totally wrong. So we quickly had to make mm. sure our landing pages were abundantly clear about what the hell the service is. It's, co- it's completely confusing until it's completely obvious. Correct. Yeah. And it's such a new thing that yes. in London you see it a lot, but, you know, 60, yeah. 60% of our customer base is outside London now. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And, and that's where we're seeing a lot of growth across the UK. And people out of there, the, the awareness surveys we've done, it's just minuscule mm. it's back to what we were talking about if the, the the percentage of spend that is actually online in terms of overall grocery that that's why it's still confusing for a lot of people i think it's exactly i think it not not just recipe boxes but online groceries in general i think it's a bit of a generational shift an attitudinal shift it's basic i the way i see it is in really simple terms humans like to they like to look at their friends their peers their co-workers their family and they just they copy others they follow habits they if and five years ago if I was to look around my friends I literally couldn't name one who would do a Cardo or, or a Tesco online or a Waitrose online or whatever I just couldn't do no one mm. now I can name probably 10 20 friends who use a Cardo regularly and, and that's in for their grocery shop fortnightly or weekly um, and I can name a lot more who are my chef customers obviously but that's interesting because I just think it's just going to take time. Yeah. People becoming comfortable with purchasing fresh produce online, essentially, yep. and just trusting that it will turn up in a box. And guess what? It's from the same, in our case, from better suppliers. It's got full traceability. The avocado that you get in our box will be very similar quality to the one that you could squeeze on a shelf. Yep. All those kind of things. So, But that will take time. I just think it's a generational thing. Well, I mean, also by definition, early adopters are a, a small percentage of, yeah, of the population. Yeah. Um, so this this next question, this might have changed since you started the business, but what's your biggest source of inspiration? Good question. Biggest source of inspiration. Um, to answer it in a slightly strange way, I... I we all read a lot and I love, I love, I feel inspired and love reading about other entrepreneurs' journeys. So for example, the, the cliche one is Richard Branson but and his numerous books, but then there's Blake McCoskey from Tom's Shoes. Um, so I've read his- I was thinking about him when you were mentioning yeah, the, uh, the Porter. I had read his, after we did One Piece Two, but um, I was like, wow, you, you you also did just start in your garage from nothing and you weren't, you know, a rocket internet. You were yeah. there and you managed to... Undeniably cool, that is, isn't undeniably it? Undeniably cool, because he's, he's now global. You see Tom's everywhere. Um, but it's reading those autobiographies and life stories and, and trials and tribulations and journeys and, and some failures from people who have been there and done that that really inspires you to go, this is possible. This is actually possible. Let's keep on pushing. Let's go through the hard times. Let's... Um, challenge ourselves I've read a great book recently um, talking about inspiration um, uh, the blue ocean strategy and it's basically if I summarise the entire book written by a few Harvard professors into one line it's think beyond your industry opportunity does not lie in looking at your industry or category and saying how can we be better than 
these mm. other two players is actually think about what the consumer wants from a totally different perspective. Hence why with us, no one was doing frozen, frozen meals, but we said, why wouldn't we be the first? Let's launch it because I think that there's people who love our service and for the health and the, um, the values and the ethics and the sourcing and the um, sustainability who also would love quicker meals just for the, the nights that they're not using us. Um, and t- take inspiration from this kind of big blue ocean out there and, and say anything is possible. Don't just confine yourselves to the normal kind of accepted practices and standards of, that, of your industry. Mm. Um, so books, I'd say, are a massive source of inspiration. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Um, so before, just before we um, wrap it up then, what, what does the future hold for Mindful Chef? Um, so we, di- we differ on our views. My, my big ambition is to have a, a truly omni-channel business um, and to be selling uh, the majority of our stuff online. D to C, own the customer journey, own the customer data, but to also have a presence offline. So I would love to get to a place in the next few years where we can develop, um, and we are developing some ranges quietly, but develop ranges that can sit on shelves if needed. Exciting. Um, mainly because I think that it's arrogant to assume that everyone will find you or know about you if you're just pure play online. And actually, supermarkets and you know Whole Foods and Planet Organic and even Ocado, they have a far broader reach than you. And if someone's strolling down a supermarket aisle, let's take frozen meals as an example, looking in the frozen section, 99% of those people would have never heard of Mindful Chef. Literally 99%. So why not put a few frozen meals there and let them let them discover mm. your brand and your ecosystem and your world because guess what if they try it and they like it they might just google mindful chef have a look at you and find that you do a whole host of other amazing things in the world from your environmental standpoint your ethical standpoint but also that you have other products yeah. so I, I would love my vision is to have uh, this uh, omnichannel uh, business that is uh, essentially saying if it's healthy if it's good for you if it ticks the environmental and the ethical box and we're happy with the supply chains, then we'll put the mindful stamp on it. And whether it's, I don't know, I'm just looking at this smoothie next to me from Pod. If it's a smoothie and we can put the mindful stamp on it, we'll do it. Because Amazing. our whole mission is to make healthy eating easy. So we know that isn't just a, a fresh dinner or a frozen dinner. Like just for our podcast here, I was thinking, God, I'm hungry. Right, I really need a snack bar. Right, you and must be starving by now then. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brilliant. No, look, and, and I, I mean this sincerely. It's it's a it's a really interesting. I, I realise how competitive your space is. So I will watch, and I will I, I I'll have fingers and toes crossed. But I'm sure I'm I'm, I'm sure you're going to achieve that. I have no doubt. Um, so the name of the show is the Startup Blueprint, and uh, at the end of every uh, at the end of every show, at the end of every episode, um, I'm going to ask you uh, to imagine a world where you can go back and give your younger self a blueprint for how to run, the ideal blueprint for how to run Mindful Chef today. I'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions for what's going to be in that blueprint. Okay. Here we go. Most important characteristic that a founder needs? Perseverance. Most important daily habit? Oh, most important daily habit. Um, Most important daily habit. I'm aware this is not a fast answer, (laughs) but I want it to be a good one. I think 
having a particularly in the early days having a focus on a couple of key numbers don't don't do loads of key metrics just a couple of key metrics that you look at every day biggest mistake to avoid trying to launch too many products at once one piece of advice when it comes to managing finances cash flow and a limited budget control it tightly have uh, if you can afford it have an amazing um, financial head in, involved from the start um, that, that would be my, my big piece there is making sure that you're on it because otherwise as a startup you can lose, you know, the cost can run away very, very quickly. One piece of advice when it comes to sales. Make sure that the, the content that you're producing is relevant to the consumer that you're speaking to. You can get so hyper-targeted nowadays hmm. in the DTC world, speaking to consumers on Facebook, Instagram, PPC, programmatic whatever it may be you can get so hyper targeted so make sure that if you know you're speaking to consumer x then you you talk to them about what they want to hear mm, interesting one piece of advice when it comes to hiring the right people um have a set of values and put everything you do through the interview process through those values to ensure that when you look at that person they can tick all of those boxes across everything they've spoken about and and, and their vision um, might be closely connected to that. One piece of advice when it comes to building the right company culture. Um, yeah, it is the values. I think it's also um, you can tell a lot about someone when you when when you just relax them and get their guard down. People go into interviews when you're hiring and they they kind of feel nervous naturally, feel nervous and a bit um, I don't know a bit uptight as you would be naturally in an interview. But try and get people to relax, be be themselves. Be really chill with them in the interview and then you'll see that the, the kind of real person come out and you'll see their true self and and often you'll get far greater insights from that than than you will do from anything else final question what one piece of advice would you give to yourself as you're handing over the blueprint one final parting piece of advice i would say remember the phrase MVP with everything you do, minimum viable product, and and use that when you want to do anything or launch anything, because in the early days we definitely waited too long in certain areas and hypothesized and tested, and actually there's only so much of that you can do. The best test is producing something and seeing whether consumers will buy it. and they'll tell you one thing but actually their actions will tell you something totally different so for us it's if I was handing it over to my younger self it would be make sure you run with MVP at the front of your mind the entire time launch something quickly don't doubt yourself move with speed and then if it doesn't if it doesn't work well you'll know and you can move on you will have to learn you'll have to and you will see a lot of failures before you hit, hit the, the successes I think that's the most important thing What did I say, her? A great journey, a great business, and great advice and insight that every entrepreneur can learn from. So what are the key takeaways? Firstly, Giles is adamant that Mindful Chef would not be where it is today without the combined efforts of all three co-founders. The advice here is simple. Look for co-founders with different but complementary skill sets and don't overcomplicate things. Mindful Chef also proves how critical it is to niche down both in terms of your target market, your value proposition, 
and your operations. This will ensure you can reach your audience and then actually utilize the funds you have to deliver what they expect. Niching down also means staying focused and resisting the temptation to try new things, introduce new products and spend on anything other than your core offering. There is also some great advice on how life-changing external investment can be and how to successfully get your, through your first few rounds of investment. It takes time, hard work and a lot of coffee meetings, but it's all about finding the right investors. These could be your clients or institutional investors, in which case you should always ask a, what else other than money they might bring. In Giles' words, these investors should not be sharks, but should be razor-focused people who can challenge you as a founder. But for me, the key takeaway is the importance of adopting an MVP approach as a startup, minimum viable product. You need to reach your customer as quickly and early as possible and find out whether they are willing to buy what you are offering. And if you are ever in doubt here, follow Charles's advice and adopt a fuck it, let's do it attitude. My name is Jared Williams and this has been the Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups and anyone who's ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business.